If someone were afraid of the dentist, maybe they haven't been in a long time, maybe they're embarrassed because they haven't been in a while, I feel like this would be a really safe place for them to go and get the care that they need. At Advanced Dentistry, we get it. If you've been avoiding the dentist because of fear, worry, or just not wanting to be judged, if you want to learn how IV sedation can change your life, visit NoFearDentist.com. Hey, y'all. Please silence your cell phones because it is time for the very first ever Pod Save the People Live. First up to the stage is your favorite poet and purveyor of dad jokes, I, I, I himself, Clint Smith III. What's up, y'all? What is going on, everybody? How's everybody doing? Awesome, awesome. I'm super hyped. This is incredible, uh, packed house. I can only see like half of y'all, though. But uh, really thrilled that all of you came through um, to spend your Sundays evening with us. We know everybody, could, you could be Netflix and chilling, but you're chilling with us. Um, so we really appreciate it. Um, so I'm going to do a poem to start us off. Uh, many of uh, many of y'all know that I'm a, I'm a PhD student, I'm a writer, but also a poet. Uh, and people have this thing, like usually when people come and listen to poetry, people think you're supposed to sit there and you're supposed to be polite and just say, hmm. <laughs> hmm. And then you do a little golf clap at the end. That's whack. We don't do that here. <laughs> if you like something, can I hear you snap? Some of y'all are ahead of the game. If you really, really like something, we say you do the delicious chocolate noise, and that's when you go, mmm. Everybody go, mmm. If you really, really like something, we say if you just moves you in your chest viscerally, you just have never experienced anything like it, we say you do Jesus, but with a shuh, because this is a secular space, so you're like, Jesus, and you fall over on the person next to you. <laughs> but please check with the person next to you first. This is flu season. We don't need people leaving with issues. It's also weird, like, whenever I do that, I, like, read and perform in, like, a lot of schools throughout the country and prisons, and, and when I go to middle schools, uh, I've made the mistake of, like, doing that bit, and I'll be like, yeah, you can say Jesus, and, like, it'll be great, and then I'll start my poem, and I'll be like, some, some slavery, and then within five seconds, just a bunch of 11-year-olds Jesus in all over each other. <laughs> uh, and so please use your Jesus with more discretion uh, than they do. Maybe just not, because like, I feel like some of y'all are going to be reckless with it. So let's just pull it back. Um, but something I've been thinking a lot about over the last uh, few weeks, and something that animates a lot of my thinking generally in, in the sort of work that I do, is that uh, Southern Poverty Law Center came out with a study uh, a few weeks ago and a survey that showed that only 8% of U.S. high school students understood that the Civil War, the central cause and reason for the Civil War, uh, was slavery. Uh, the majority of them, uh, the, the young people surveyed, thought that it was uh, tariffs or the economy or X, Y, Z, right? So, and we've been over this, right? We've been, we've been through this, and, and it's interesting because this continues to be, uh, and obviously, you know, now we have sort of empirical evidence that this is the case, but if people treat, like, the idea that the civil, talking about the Civil War being centrally about slavery as if it, you're trying to, like, indoctrinate students with your political ideology, but it's like... Fam, it's written right there. What are you talking Like, if you read the declarations, you read every declaration of Confederate secession, they're like, da-da-da-da-da, this is about slavery, 
right? Like, so this is not, this is not something that is unclear. What we need to do is teach children to read primary sources, right? Because it's right there. Um, and so, part of if you listen to the podcast all the time, uh, you know that we're talking and thinking a lot about American history, and we're thinking a lot about uh, revisionist history, and we're thinking a lot about the, the ways that we are oftentimes so committed to the idea of American exceptionalism that we inevitably suppress anything that makes us look unexceptional as a country, right? So we talk about Thomas Jefferson being the intellectual founding father of this country, but don't talk about the fact that in notes in the state of Virginia, he wrote very explicitly that black people were inherently inferior to white people in endowments of body and mind. We talk about Abraham Lincoln as being like the great emancipator, but we don't talk about the fact that he didn't believe that black people were fundamentally capable of being equal citizens in this country, right? So part of what it means to be uh, a, a critically thinking U.S. citizen and to understand U.S. history in its totality is to recognize that we live in a country that is full of complicated dualities. And we have to hold those dualities together at once in order to understand like, the full context of who we are as a country. Uh, and what we know is that 12 of our first 18 presidents owned slaves, eight of them owned slaves while they were in office, and this poem is a letter to five of them. Letter to five of the presidents who owned slaves while they were in office. George Washington, when you won the revolution, how many of your soldiers did you send from the battlefield to the cotton field? How many had to trade in their rifles for plows? Can you blame the slaves who ran away to fight for the British because at least the Redcoats were honest about their oppression, Thomas Jefferson? When you told Sally Hemings you would free her children if she remained your mistress, did you think there was honor in the ultimatum? Do you think we wouldn't be able to recognize the assault in your signature as raping your slave when you disguise it as bribery, make it less of a crime? When you wrote the Declaration of Independence, did you ever intend for black people to have freedom over their bodies, James Madison? When you wrote to Congress that black people should count as three-fifths of a person, how long did you have to look at your slaves to figure out the math? Was it easy to chop them up? Did you think they'd be happy being more than just half-human James Monroe? When you proposed sending slaves back to Africa, did black bodies feel like rented tools? When you branded them, did the scar on their chest include an expiration date? When you named the country Liberia, were you trying to be ironic? Does this really count as liberation, Andrew Jackson? Was the Trail of Tears not enough for you? Was killing Cherokee, Choctaw, Creek, Seminoles not enough to quench your imperialism? How many brown bodies do you have to bulldoze before you can call it progress, Mr. Washington, Jefferson, Madison, Monroe, Jackson? When you put your hand on the Bible and swore to protect this country, let's be honest in who you were talking about. When the first Independence Day fireworks set the sky aflame, don't forget where we were watching from. So when you remember Jefferson's genius, don't forget the slaves who built the bookshelves in his library. When you remember Jackson's victories in war, don't forget what he was fighting to preserve. When you sing that this country was founded on freedom, don't forget the duet of shackles dragging against the ground my entire life. I'd been taught how perfect this country was, but no one ever told me about the pages torn out of my textbooks, how black and brown bodies have been bludgeoned for three centuries and find no place in the curriculum. A present... A, <laughs> oppression. Oppression doesn't disappear just because you decided not to teach us that chapter. If you only hear one side of the story, at some point, you have to question who the writer is. And now, it is time for the news.
Hey, y'all. <laughs> it's the news. I'm Brittany Packnett. I'm Miss Packetti on all social media. And I'm Sam Sinyangwe at Sam Sway on Twitter. I'm Clint Smith at Clint Smith the Third. Say it. I, Don't I, do that. I, I. <laughs> hey, this is Duray, and welcome to Pod Save the People. We're about to do the news, but I'll just say this is our first ever live show. We are honored and excited that you chose to be here with us tonight. We have a lot to, a lot to go through, and uh, we're excited to share with you, so I'll pass it over. And Wakanda forever. Wakanda forever. So, speaking about Wakanda, you know, I saw Black Panther at 2.30 in the morning last night. <laughs> and, like, I didn't even know that they had showings at 2.30 in the morning. <laughs> like, this might have been the only time in history they did this. And I did it because all the other showings were full, right? <laughs> I love that pause. I was yeah. like, what? Because it right. wasn't that complicated, right? And so... And I say it because I, I was so excited, like everyone's excited about Black Panther. If you haven't seen it yet, you have to see it. It's an incredible movie. Um, and then I was like excited, I'm looking online, I'm ready to see it. And then all the showings are full, like no seats, like not even side seats, there's just like no seats. <laughs> Raise your hand if you've seen Black Panther so far. Okay. The so, rest of y'all need to get it together. Yeah, y'all need to yeah. see it quickly. <laughs> so y'all need to see it in 4DX, which I yes. also didn't know existed. Yeah. So you're in like a ride, and it's yes. like... Wait, is that what you... you it's very like spraying we saw stuff in your too. face. You, you saw yeah. it in 4DX? Yeah. Yeah, it's I like... I didn't know that. It's like 3D plus a Disney ride all in one. <laughs> I saw it on... Is it better... I saw it on IMAX. Is it better than IMAX? I mean, you should watch yes. the movie in IMAX first and then go watch it because okay. you're going to be concentrating on how much you shake it. You watch it <laughs> The theater moves. Yes, the seats move, the That's wind like blows, the, uh, the, your back gets punched. That's like it's like that Back to the Future thing, more expensive? Right? Yeah. Disney World. That's it cool. is more expensive. That's, that's the that's trick. That's the catch. Yeah. I never had 4DX. <laughs> yeah, it was not cheap. It was not cheap. But it's just that good. But it's just that good. It no was definitely worth it. it. It was definitely worth it. Um, so I'm going to talk about my piece of news. If you've been listening to the pod, we each share a piece of news and talk about it. Uh, and mine is about Curtis Dawkins. It's a New York Times article about this man, uh, a man who is currently in prison in Michigan, uh, life without parole. And while he's been in prison, it's been about 12 years, uh, he has been writing short stories, fictional stories. Uh, and in fact, finally, he gets contacted by a major publisher and they're going to give him a $150,000 book deal. And then the state of Michigan, the Department of Treasury, proceeds to notify him that they are going to confiscate 90% of all of the proceeds of the deal. And I say this because oftentimes when we talk about incarceration, we talk about uh, prisons, we talk about private prisons and the ways in which that they, they profit off of the caging and incarceration uh, of predominantly people of color, uh, but we don't talk as much about the public prison system and the ways in which they're continuing to profit off of people in many of the same ways. And so, for example, in 40 states, there are laws that allow uh, the Department of Corrections to take money from inmates for a range of different things, so charging medical co-pays, uh, taking salaries from prisoners who are working, doing work release programs, uh, charging for room and board to stay at the prison that you can't leave from. Wow. That's like a thing. I didn't know that was a thing. Um, so much so that there are 10 million people today 
that owe a total combined amount of $50 billion in fees because of their arrest and incarceration. And so I'm just going to throw that out to, to the team over here to talk about because this is something that, like, $50 billion is just wild to me, and it's imposed on people who have the least ability to actually pay that back and who we need most to be reintegrated back into society and successful when they return home. This is why we talk about criminal justice so much, right? Because we want folks to imagine something different. Uh, we have gotten so used to people just being locked up, us throwing away the key, and we all move on and pretend like these people aren't people anymore. And dignity never becomes a part of the equation. You know, I was thinking about uh, the $37 million that was just awarded to Corinne Gaines's family. She was killed by police. Um, and that money comes out of the taxpayers' pockets. Uh, there was no admission of guilt of any kind because the criminal case wasn't won, but the civil case was. And we keep making oppressed people pay for our, their own suffering. Mm. And this is just a doubling up on that. Uh, and it's happening every single day. This story made the news because it was kind of an extreme case with this guy getting this book deal. Uh, but it's happening every single day. And so what is it going to take for us to make a different calculation about how we rehabilitate people and include their dignity in that conversation? And I think about two things in this. I think about, first, how prison is, a, is an institution that is predicated on stripping people of their agency, right? Like stripping you of your physical agency, stripping you of your social agency. And I think this story is emblematic of it stripping you of your intellectual agency, too, right? That you won't, this, they are literally telling this man that he is not, does not have the right to the uh, funds that he generates from his intellectual currency right, and his intellectual work. Um, and I think that part of, we need to think about, pr part of what is so egregious about prisons is that uh, the stripping of agency is like so all-encompassing. Uh, and then secondly, part of what you alluded to is, I think people are always talking about uh, how, how horrific private prisons are, right? And we talk about like um, the Correction Corporation of America, which changed their name because they think they're slick. It's like, oh, we'll just like, <laughs> We are known as like the worst prison system in the world, so we're just gonna like change our name and nobody's gonna know. It's like, you're the same folks, you just like switched up to some initials. Um, and I think we think about that and we recognize that the, the private prison industry obviously being, you know, you make your money from housing as many people as possible for as cheaply as possible for as long as possible. Like there's a particular sort of moral egregiousness to that. But the thing about it is that most people aren't incarcerated in private prisons, right? And most people are incarcerated in public prisons, but we don't talk often enough about how those public prisons have many parts of them that are deeply privatized, right? Whether it's the medical services, the food services, the, um, the ways in which people are, uh, are, are surveilled and like kept um, the ankle bracelets and different Phone things like cards. that after that they follow yeah. uh, after they leave the And so I think that we have to like have a broader conversation about all of the sort of more nuanced ways in which like privatization and these like weird sort of um, Perverse incentives shape our carceral system and end up uh, giving us stories like that What is interesting though is like you said Clint is that only 8% of the prison population is actually in a private prison and that's interesting because when you ask most people, most people are like 50%, 70%, because the public narrative about this is, is if everybody's in a private prison. And the reality is in places like New Mexico, about 40%, 45% are in private prison. But across the country, private prisons just aren't 
like it's just not the biggest celebrity, even though some of the people that have made like the best documentaries and best stories have sort of talked about private prisons. What's interesting about this story, uh, Sam, is that this guy is, he's, a, he's like writing short stories, right? He's not like, he's, he didn't get a book deal about his crimes. He, these are not like the Son of the Sam laws. If you know the Son of Sam laws across the country, don't let people, not this Sam, the son of another Sam, uh, <laughs> don't let people who have committed crimes benefit from the stories of the crimes. But this guy is like writing short stories. And like Clint said, it does, it's like the perverse incentive about like his intellectual property. There is this question too about like, what is the cost of imprisonment? Like how, how much do we keep sort of charging people for the things that they do? And sort of the big thing that I take away from this is, is that we often talk about loud trauma. So like the louder the trauma, the bigger the organizing. People die, like buildings blow up, like that is very loud trauma, but there's all this quiet trauma that impacts people's lives on a daily basis that we just don't talk about as much because it's not as sexy, it's not as sort of like interesting. And one of our sort of tasks as organizers is like, how do we make the quiet trauma things that people understand? Because the quiet trauma is what's ruining people's lives when the loud trauma isn't always present. So I think about that a lot. And before your news, I just, I didn't know we were moving off of Black Panther so quickly. And if we were recording, <laughs> we would have kept talking about Black Panther. If we were recording, I'm going to be like, say. can we double back? But I just wanted to say, if you've not, if you've seen it, then, you know, you've seen it and it's dope. If you haven't seen it, there's no spoilers uh, here. Kind is, of. No, Vibranium. It's about bi- Vibranium. People know that. That came in the movie before. Exactly. Vibranium. Not, I'm not like making it up. I mean, I'm not like exposing it to you first. But what I didn't know and what I wanted to share is that Vibranium in the movie or in the universe is actually modeled off of uh, a mineral called coltan, which is found in the Congo. Mm-hmm. And it is impossible to make cell phones without it. So when you see the movie, if you've not seen the movie, there's this question about like what happened if parts of Africa weren't colonized and what if they actually got to keep this resource and it wasn't exploited because the resource that Vibranium is actually modeled off of is in real life. And you probably already know that uh, Captain America's shield is Vibranium, is made Mm. of Vibranium. So even in the Marvel Universe, Vibranium has high currency. That was the only thing I wanted to contribute to Black (laughs) (laughs) Panther. an important contribution. <laughs> oh, the last we, thing, I know one more thing about, mm-hmm. I know I'm like, you know, if we were recording, I could have like, I'm sorry. I'm like, I'm obsessed with the Black Panther conversation. The other thing is that the word rope, you know, we helped the Black Panther Challenge, Fred, uh, Fred Joseph, who started the Black Panther Challenge, we helped launch blackpantherchallenge.org so that it's an easier way for you to find the places to donate. But in the process, we did a lot of research about Black can Panther. You, can you explain for yeah. people who don't know what the Black Panther Challenge is? You explain it. I'll explain it? Yeah. Didn't you create the I know, thing? but you got it. Go ahead. Tell the people. <laughs> as, as, I, as far as I understand it, it is a recognition that, uh, that certain, you know, movies are expensive these days. And so part of what people recognize the importance of this movie, not just as a film, but obviously as a cultural phenomenon. You've seen that across the country. Um, and so I think it's an effort to ensure that as many young people are yeah. seeing the film as possible um, who otherwise might not be able to go, might not be able to afford it. Yeah. And so, uh, so I think that there is an opportunity for people to donate. You donate, and then it supplies a ticket for a young Bam. person to So hopefully everyone will donate to the Black Panther Challenge, because um, obviously the Black Panther is, I saw it, I can't stop talking about it. I'm trying real hard not to give spoilers, but I'll, <laughs> I'll just say it is one of the, part of the reason it was so good was that I was sitting there and, and I was like, man, the villain is making some good ass points. I was like, 
I was like, this is a family podcast. It's a family podcast. It's a family. I know. I'm Watch see, your but language, usually I do it. Dad usually Clint. it's true. Usually I'm out. I'm in the in my house with my son. So I feel like, <laughs> but I feel I'm like free now. I'm like you know saying. What, what were you gonna say? My last thing is. Um, I'm really I mean, you worked like so hard this. to get it out. I, I want to know what it was. Uh, my my last thing is about the word robot. So the word robot actually comes from the Czech word for slave. Hmm. And in uh, when you talk to film theorists, we did a, a lot of conversations with professors about the movie. Is is that there are people that argue that the idea of a robot, the idea of like a thing created that becomes sentient and then sort of attacks the people that made it, is always playing on the the fear of slave rebellion. Mm. So mm. when you so like people sort of also map some theorists think that Frankenstein was written after some some theorists would say that Frankenstein was written after the Haitian Revolution and that the image of Frankenstein also is sort of like the monster who becomes sentient and tries to kill the people that make it the fear of black people. So when people talk about the importance of Black Panther, it is also that black people are no longer an allegory in the future, but black people are like real whole beings in the future, right? Yeah. And that like That's this, deep. I know. I'm glad you got that point in. That was See? important. I know. It was okay. important to me. <laughs> But like trying to think about, trying to just be mindful about the history of this stuff. And I'm like, I continue yeah. to be fascinated by those things. That's real deep. I was just going to talk about how bad those sisters were. <laughs> when I watched Black Panther. That's good. That's real. Coming out with those spears. There was one point, it's not a spoiler, but there's one point in which Okoye takes off her wig and throws it at the villain's face. And I was like, you better cast off your colonization, girl. Yes. <laughs> get there one day uh the the film is phenomenal for a million different reasons um and when i think about it being ryan coogler's third movie ever he's and he's 31, 31 years old. old he made fruitvale station he made uh, uh creed and now he made black panther which um is said to be the fourth wow. highest opening of all time after the three last three star wars so shout out to ryan coogler shout out to all these incredible black folks making art right now and shout out to those bad sisters and Black Panther. Okay, can I do my news now? Yes. Okay. Uh, <laughs> uh, so, if you follow me on Instagram, between my boyfriend and I singing on Instagram stories, you'll, you'll know that I put up uh, morning readings every few days. And I put up an article a couple of days ago. Thank you to the one person who reads my <laughs> Somebody is passionate. Appreciate it. Get their morning I put up an article a couple of days ago because there's some fake news actually going on. Like, not Trump fake news, real fake news. Uh, so an organization called FAIR did a report, and they looked at all of the stories that had been put out last November in the New York Times. And there were 21 stories about the supposed free speech um, limits on conservative folks and only three stories about limits on uh, leftist speech or liberal speech on campuses. Uh, meanwhile, um, there have been multiple reports that were recently put out that white supremacist propaganda on campuses increased by triple, it increased uh, three times as much on campuses in the last year alone. Uh, so despite what mainstream media is showing us, white, uh, right-wing pop propaganda, white supremacist propaganda, it's all very real uh, and growing at rapid rates. So here's the problem. This means that mainstream media is purporting this both sides story, right? And we know that this equivalency is false and it is harmful. I wanna be very clear, and I hope you are listening closely. There are not two sides to white supremacy. We know that, right? It is wrong 
period, end of sentence. There is nothing else. <laughs> uh, so um, recent reports don't make a direct causal link between uh, white supremacist propaganda on campus and higher incidences of, ra of um, uh, racially motivated violence. But 59% uh, of all extremist murders that happened last year were done by white supremacists, nearly two-thirds. That's tw a 20% increase from 2016. And so after uh, Charlottesville, in the month after Charlottesville, these same organizations looked at the top six mainstream broad-based newspapers, and they saw 28 op-eds condemning the anti-fascist response to Charlottesville and only 27 op-eds talking and actually condemning neo-Nazis. So, you know, we rightfully condemned Trump for talking about this like there were just two sides of a misunderstood argument. Um, but it sounds like we actually need to be coming from mainstream media on this too. Yeah, it's, uh, I think the, it's one of the things, I think for people who've been following uh, that story in different ways. Like the New York Times, I think, is emblematic of this sort of uh, marathon of cognitive dissonance where it is, like, I, like to be clear, like, I, I, like, love the New York Times. I think it is, the, it is indispensable to our media landscape and indispensable to uh, our country. It is for that reason that I think I'm so confused and concerned mm -hmm. with them lifting up voices of individuals who espouse this false equivalency and who, because they get Twitter ratioed, are like, people are trying to suppress my free speech, which is a fundamental misunderstanding of like what free speech is, right? Free speech is actually the government preventing you from sharing certain things at certain times. And so if people, if you say something and people get mad at you, that's life, right? That's life. And to, and to be clear, speech that incites violence is completely different. Right, yeah. exactly. And, and on, uh, the other thing I'll say is that this false equivalency between like, the far left and the far right is so uh, strange because it's, not, it's like to believe, for example, that uh, prisons shouldn't exist because they are an oppressive force is fundamentally different than to believe that Black and Jewish people should not exist right. <laughs> because they're, they're a neo-Nazi, right? But like we, we try to make it so that each of these things are like two different sides of the same coin, and, and they're not. They're not at all. Yeah, this, this reminds me of how the response has also been different. So, for example, we saw University of Wisconsin uh, Board of Regents recently passed a policy that specifically sought to punish people who disrupted and protested white supremacist speakers on campus. Um, and I say this because, you know, we have seen this sort of both sides uh, narrative from places like the New York Times. And even then, when you're depicting it as both sides, the policy response has been very one-sided. So there's not even both sides. But even then, they're picking the side of the Nazis and white supremacists in what they choose to protect through policy. We see this at the state level where a number of bills have been introduced uh, to punish protesters who are protesting campus speakers. Um, and so I wonder, like, why is it that we're not seeing a response that is actually affirmatively going in and saying, we're going to have an action plan to prevent white supremacists from recruiting people on campus? We just saw uh, in Florida with the school shooting how the shooter was himself radicalized with white supremacist ideas. 
Um, you know, Brittany shared the statistics on 59% of extremist-related murders were from white supremacists, uh, double the year before, uh, and already this year, you know, the number is almost as much as it was all of last year. Uh, and so this is a huge terrorist threat, and instead of actually, I mean, I won't even talk about Trump because he's making the problem worse, but instead of doing something about it, presenting a real plan to address white supremacy, white supremacist organizing and recruiting on campus, we're seeing the exact opposite from campuses, from policymakers, and from all of the leaders who should actually be responsible for protecting people like us. And there's no... I like that. <laughs> Is that right? It's always been interesting to me to, to hear people talk about free speech divorce from the power imbalance. So you think about Charlottesville, it's like the way those people push the police is so foreign to, like, I remember we were just in the street and got tear gas, right? Like just for being, just for out, just for being outside. And in Charlottesville, like what you saw was that like there's no way to talk about free speech without also talking about the enforcement ability, like the enforcement power. And there are a lot of people who live in this sort of cocoon where they're just like, free speech. And it's like, well, free speech for black people is a very different thing than free speech for white people. Like, the way it's enforced <laughs> is just different. And I was on a panel once about free speech with the, the legal director from, like, a major place that all of you would know, but I'm not going to shade them here. And, and he was like, you know, we were talking about, you know, how hate speech or speech that invites, incites violence is not protected. And I'm like, you know there's a history of racist speech in this country like leading to lynching and stuff like that. And the man says to me, he's like, but the KKK hasn't been around for a long time. When was the last lynching? And I was like, what? I'm like, you are the, you're like, you're, you're our side, right? Like you're like the legal guy on our end. So I just say that to say that there is this, it is seductive to think that we have come so far yeah. and that like calling people the N-word and, and like, being anti-Semitic just has no ramifications when we know the history of the ramifications is actually really recent, right? That it's not in the distant past. So I don't know. I'm always thinking about how free speech and the power imbalance are deeply intertwined. I'll only close by saying, you know, we thankfully and rightfully will take on headlines like these and op-eds like these on Twitter, in social media, in our own friend groups, and people will call us intolerant for doing it. I am sorry, I will always be intolerant of hatred. Like, I have no tolerance for it. In fact, I'm not sorry. And that's our job. That is our job. Uh, we can be intolerant of hatred without becoming the hatred that we're trying to dismantle. I'm ready for that to be the next t-shirt. <laughs> I got you. Oh, there you go. Um, I'm going to quickly share just, you know, we live in this moment where something that happened three days ago feels like it happened three years ago, but what also happened this week was that the White House released its budget, uh, and there were a lot of ridiculous, really concerning things in that budget. Uh, among them is the $17 million uh, cut to SNAP, which is more colloquially known as uh, food stamps. And, and so the thing is that they are uh, suggesting that they are going to replace SNAP with a, a quote-unquote blue apron-like box service um, that is going to deliver box food uh, and canned vegetables and meats and, and different things and pastas um, to people who qualify for these benefits. Um, and, and that that is going to cut costs. It is going to be more convenient. And the thing, to, to, to bring it back to the, the headlines and the the way, you know, media has a very difficult job in this moment, but like if the White House calls a $17 million cut to SNAP, if they then just call it Blue Apron, 
for people living in poverty, you don't say the White House has now presented a policy of blue apron for people living. You don't just repeat the BS. You're supposed to challenge it, right? Um, but part of what it is is that there are so. Who started the blue apron thing? They who started what? They said the it. Talking point. The they said it. Mulvaney got on. He was like, nuts. "This is blue apron." I don't know why. I thought, he was I thought, like, "Yeah, so, you just go saute up some peas and like." You got some, I thought that like a pundit said that. I didn't know. Nah, he just was, can't put anything past these people. Like, that is. <laughs> And the thing is that there's a lot of details, you know, which is uh, part from the course. Hold on, can you saute peas? What did I just say? Did you say saute peas? <laughs> I don't know. I, I, don't, I don't cook. I don't know how to cook. <laughs> Dre needs blue apron I can for cook, real, though. for real. I'm just saying. Um, but part of this is like they. This represents um, a sort of way of thinking about people living in poverty that is reflective of a myriad of different policies that this White House has proposed. Um, whether or not it will ultimately be implemented, and so you know whether it's uh, picking the food for people who are living in poverty, whether it's uh, imposing work, work requirements on people living in Medicaid or qualify for Medicaid, or um, drug testing people for unemployment benefits. I think there's a this White House reflects a deep and like fundamental misunderstanding of how people end up in poverty, and then I think our country fundamentally misunderstands how the the. The structure of our economy, like the literal structure of our economy as it is currently set up, makes the lives of poor people more difficult than it already is. Right? When it, when it should be, like we should be trying to mitigate and alleviate the the difficulties that people living in poverty experience. Instead, we have a government and we have an economy that consistently makes it more and more difficult. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. There is a fundamental misunderstanding of how people end up in poverty. There seems to be a very clear understanding of how you force people to stay in poverty, right. though. And you know, that was a word. Besides, that was a word. <laughs> besides the paternalism, right? Mm. That I'm literally going to tell you what to eat right. because I do not think that you have the mental capacity to right. decide for yourself which is deeply inappropriate wow. and disrespectful. Besides that, I got stuck on the fact that there are canned fruits and vegetables, right? Which like, let's be clear, Blue Apron is not selling anybody canned fruits and vegetables. <laughs> it's farm to table. Yeah. And so- <laughs> Okay, Brittany, okay. I'm, I'm, just, I'm over it. <laughs> Somebody give me a, never mind. Uh, so, but, and, and this is what I mean by an understanding of how to keep people in poverty. This is the government's job to actually study what keeps people healthy, what increases life expectancy, what decreases the incidence of, of disease. So we know what keeps people healthy. We know it is fresh fruits and vegetables, among other things. Right. And what the same government is telling us is that we know what will keep you healthy and we won't give you access to it. Right. That is intentional. And if we don't talk about it like it's intentional, we're going to continue to allow it to happen. And, you know, it, it's the same as when we price people out of being able to afford fresh produce and we put the Whole Foods and the Trader Joe's across town or we gentrify you out of your neighborhood so that we can build it. We don't, we don't seem to be clear about how people be, become impoverished, but we certainly seem to be clear on how to keep people poor. And it's really disrespectful. Yeah. So two things on this. First, what Clint alluded to around the messaging. We have to get to a place, in the media especially, has to get to a place where they're not just parroting and repeating whatever the White House says, whatever any politician says. Because, you know, this administration doesn't know a lot of things and messes up a lot of things. 
<laughs> they do get communications, and they know that most people don't click through the article, right? You're scrolling on your timeline, you see the headline, you think you sort of get like 75% of what's going to happen, and you might not click through, but it registers with you. It has an impact on public opinion. And so when it's labeled, you know, Blue Apron, then that's your impression. That's what 75% or more of people will hear, and that will be how it's framed to them. And it's very hard to overcome a pre-existing uh, understanding or conception of something once it's already been solidified. And the Trump administration gets this very well, which is why they did what they did. It has to be the job of folks in the media, all of us in social media who are retweeting stuff, sharing stuff, to make sure that we're not helping them do that work for them, that, makes it all, that causes all of the problems that Brittany just talked about. And the second thing is, like, they actually didn't really think this out clearly. <laughs> in addition to the general evilness of it, like, how are they going to make sure that people get the box? So, like, they didn't do a good job of that in Puerto yeah. Rico. No. So you're just going to have a box. Or they did no job in Puerto Rico. Period. Yeah, yeah. Right. right, right. And so, you know, you're just going to get a box on your front doorstep if you have a permanent address, which a lot of folks living in poverty don't. So already we're excluding, we're already excluding the folks who are, have the highest level of need and saying, you're just not going to eat the food that you're entitled to through mm -hmm. legislation. And then they're going to say, okay, so you can get the box, but it's, it might be sitting out front of your door for like two days, three days. Like, it's not our responsibility to make sure that you actually get the food mm -hmm. that you're entitled to. And I think that's just another piece. I don't know if it's not well thought out, if they just pitched something, they thought it sounded good, or as what Brittany was alluding to, this is all very intentional. Like, they don't actually care. They were thinking about it, and they're like, it doesn't matter to us. I think that is also really frightening to think about their yeah. thought process that led them to this. Mm -hmm. It is interesting. A lot of people who have never used food stamps or don't know anybody on food stamps don't know much about food stamps. And already, you can't buy hot food with food stamps. You can't buy household supplies with food stamps. So people aren't, like, buying things at Boston Market. You know, like, that's not what people are doing with food stamps. And the other big criticism of food stamps, if you didn't know, is about soda consumption. There's this idea that people on food stamps are just like buying soda. If you, that's like one of the biggest things. So there's a study that shows that soda consumption amongst SNAP users is consistent with non-SNAP users. So that's not an issue either. Just thought I'd add that. Because it is interesting, it is this question of like, um, what do we, the way that we built sort of the philanthropic community, it's like a lot of programs and services. And when we think about SNAP, SNAP is really important. And what the administration is doing now is like feeding into this idea that people just can't make good decisions if we give them like money, right? Or if we give them actual things. So this idea that let us make the decisions for them. And not only is the box thing a problem, but that, that idea actually spreads through a lot of people. A, a lot of the ways that we set up programs and services in communities is this idea that, like, we're going to actually make all the decisions. You just need to send your kid here, right? Like, we're going to do this program, da-da-da, you just, you just come. Because we don't actually trust that people in poverty, that people from marginalized communities can actually make good decisions. And, like, we have to attack that idea because people agree with this boxing because they believe that idea, right? Mm -hmm. So how do we, like, name the idea and then fight that so that, like, this doesn't actually take sway? Now, for my news, I'm bringing out a friend of the pod, Wesley Lowry, who is a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist at the Washington Post.
it's, that's like the I'm only way I want to back people up now. Like, I, you don't come to me like this. I was, like, who are you? Hi, nice to meet you. Hi, so I, I, was, <laughs> I, I was told Clint's child would be here, and that's the only reason I showed up. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry to disappoint. Baby Now... We originally met Wesley in the street in Ferguson. People forget that we were in the street for 400 days in the initial wave of the protest. It's a long time. You might remember that Wesley got arrested pretty early at the McDonald's, and that was a thing. Uh, but more importantly, we remember seeing Wesley every night and every day. You know, people forget that it was illegal to stand still, that if we sit still for more than five seconds, we were arrested. So if you ever saw us marching, it was not because we thought marching was the most incredible tactic. It was because we had to march. We had no choice. But Wesley was there with us. So it, thank you, Wesley, for, for saying you'd be with us today on the first uh, live pod, and we're honored to have you. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. Um, and so you started this segment about the news, and I figured I, I might be able to contribute to that a little bit. Um, <laughs> given my background. What is the news you're bringing? I brought you for my news, so what are you bringing? <laughs> <laughs> so the news I'm bringing today um, is from Parkland, Florida, where I've been for the last few days, mm-hmm. uh, covering the uh, school shooting at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. And uh, even this afternoon, as preparing uh, to be on the pod today, I was interviewing some of the young student activists um, who have been uh, really front and center um, in the days since the shooting left 17 of their teachers and their classmates dead. Um, and what was fascinating to me, um, I was interviewing one of the organizers, Alex Wind, who's a 17-year-old junior at the high school, and he, and he declared to me, he said that him and, and the other kind of organizers, they're calling themselves um, Never Again MSD, mm. uh, they said none of them are going to go back to class until legislation is passed. Mm. Um, and they've announced... Um, And they've announced this series of rallies and, mar- and marches for March 24th. And so it's, it's been fascinating, um, as I was, I was chatting with uh, a few of you guys yesterday and today, about how this energy on the ground felt so different. You know, I, in my job, I'm a national correspondent. I cover um, issues of law enforcement and justice. But what that means, in a lot of cases, is I work on long projects about police accountability and then short, breaking news stories about tragedy about police shootings, about the shootings of police officers, about mass shootings and terrorist attacks and and natural disasters. And so I've been in a lot of spaces that have been experiencing trauma um, in the moments after that trauma. And what's different now is that it's not solemn, it's extremely seething. People Mm. are very upset Mm. um, and having covered issues of gun violence for for years. uh, This does feel like a moment that perhaps is different. I haven't in real time felt like this probably since those first nights in Ferguson with you guys. Mm. And it's really interesting because I think we're in a political moment and also a sort of social and technological moment where, where we can literally see this. I mean, part of it was deeply concerning and, and unsettling at first because we were, you could almost watch live as these young people were tweeting and Instagramming their experience in lockdown while, they, while a shooter was still in their yeah. school which is something, I mean, clearly that's not something that could have ever happened in Columbine or something like that. And then secondly, on a, you know, on on the other side of it is, is that now, you know, because of Twitter and because of Instagram and Facebook and all these things, young people have a voice for themselves, right? So, so, so often in these, when these things happen, we don't hear the voices of the young people themselves. Like we often hear the school, the principal or the teachers or the um, school district uh, superintendent. 
But, but like we see, I, on my, my timeline is full of kids from that school who are like responding to politicians, they are responding to Trump, they are, and that is amazing. And they are on it. It's amazing. They, they are, are like on not it. here they, for it. Did you, you know when they had to do that, right? They had to do that because the adults in the room were sitting around saying right. nothing's ever going to happen. Right. 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 So hats off to every single young person doing this work because we failed them right. as adults. We, I, you know, Wesley, we were talking about kind of the fatalism of this moment, and so many people are tempted to say, well, nothing happened after Sandy Hook, and nothing happened after Gabby Giffords was shot, and all of these things, and I understand where the cynicism comes from, but we owe our children more of that, and quite frankly, they are showing us how we should be right. responding. We, there are two things. One is, you know, I believe in gun control. As people who believe in equity and justice around race, we also worry about the language of gun control because we worry that for some people, gun control means like penalize people who have guns and that historically has disproportionately landed on people of color, right? So we think that we might like win on, on drugs, that we might like actually get these rollbacks on all these mandatory minimums around, around drugs and they'll just be replaced by guns. And what'll happen is like what's happening in Baltimore where the police are just like planting things on people and they'll be like, you had a gun and then it's like 30 years, right? So trying to think about gun control legislation in a way that is equitable and fair and like how do we also think about making sure that the guns never get into communities in the first place so we don't have to like penalize people heavily uh, in the end. The other thing too is I think about and the three of us were all teachers is that it is wild to me that people are like let's arm the teachers. It was like it was hard enough to teach right? No. Like it was hard enough to come in every day and deliver a world-class lesson and like you know. People are wild man. Absolutely. And even even I, the I best of us. I don't want us, you with a gun, Duray. Huh? I, don't, I don't need you with a <laughs> gun. Stop it. Right. Even the best of us, like, you failed every, you know, teaching was one of the most incredible things I've ever done, and I failed every day, right? Every day there every was, like, day. a kid yeah. that, like, didn't really get it, and I tried, and it's like, the thought that you would be skilled enough to do that job and be ready at a moment's notice to like be a sharpshooter is right after you right after you finish teaching julius caesar you got to be ready with your strap like what the the only job that makes more simultaneous decisions at any moment than a teacher is an air traffic controller so Mm. imagine arming folks that are making that i mean it's the truth i'm gonna say that somewhere i like that Right, so imagine arming someone who's got that much divided attention yeah. at one point in time. It doesn't make any sense whatsoever. No, no I mean, it, it's real. To your point, DeRay, around how enforcement of gun control, like enforcement of everything else in the society, is done along racial lines. Mm-hmm. And so we have to think about when we're thinking about, you know, for example, the assault weapons ban and a range of other policies, um, like what Baltimore's doing around creating essentially a zone uh, in the city like a school zone where if you have a gun, you have an automatic mandatory sentence. Um, Stop and frisk was a policy that was pitched as something that could deal with a lot of people with weapons on the street, and we saw how that impacted predominantly black and Latino men in New York City. And so in thinking about solutions, we have to be able to apply a racial racial lens, not just to this issue, but all issues, Mm -hmm. and think about how do we, number one, have a a preventative approach so that we are able to better identify folks who should not have guns and intervene before they get guns. And number two, that we're thinking about uh, 
accountability in a way that is not just really severe jail terms, which we know like increasing the sentence from like 10 years to 20 years is not going to change that person's behavior. It's just not, right? And so there have to be other interventions, other stakeholders that are involved in the situation that can actually address some of the underlying root causes, which in many cases are, you know, toxic masculinity, white supremacy, Mm -hmm. domestic violence, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, folks who are having a range of other issues that just didn't get identified, didn't get intervened in. Nobody helped to treat them. Nobody helped to to put them on a different track uh, or notify people that they might be a problem. So we have to think about building that system and not just a bigger prison system. And to to add a historical lens, uh, what's important to know is that we can't disentangle the contemporary manifestations of uh, gun violence from the fact that the Second Amendment, when it was signed, was signed in large part and put in place in large part to have white folks be able to keep slave militias from rising up, or slave rebellions from rising up, right? Like, it, was, it exists in large part because white folks were afraid that what happened in Haiti and what happened in uh, South Carolina, what happened in, in, in different places, would, all, would happen in different um, states throughout the country. And they were like, you know, the rhetoric is that we need, everybody needs a gun to protect themselves from the British, um, but the reality is that everybody needed a gun in part because they were afraid of what black people would do when they got fed up. So, Wesley, we're excited for you to be here with us. We're going to ask you some questions. Clinton, Sam, we'll have you back at the end for Q&A. We love you. Thank you. Uh, And as you know, I normally do the interviews alone, but... I wanted Brittany to be here for this one because this is like a reunion of sorts and we haven't all been together in in a while. So I'll start with Wesley, you know, seeing the coverage of Florida on like not being down there, it was fascinating again to see people be like, well, the shooter came from a troubled home and like he had all these problems as if that was some sort of excuse. Was, Was the response in Florida as, were they as frustrated as we are here or was that just not one of the issues that people were focusing on? The folks in Florida are really fed up, and, and that was extremely apparent in conversation after conversation after conversation, that these things feel like, and I get it, and I, I see this not from both sides, right, but I see this as someone who produces these news reports as well as someone who consumes them and is sensitive to how we fall into these cycles, right? It is important to us to know that this person had a history of mental illness. It is important to us to know that this person had a history of violence or that there were warning signs, right? And you see, we get and we understand why reporters drill into those things, right? So we can see these patterns time and time again. But that said, I think the frustration comes from folks feeling as if we hold that out and stop at that point. Well, he was, he was mentally ill and there was a history and the FBI should have fixed it. So, ne- so let's move on, right? This idea that time and time again, this happens and we move on. It, it's, it's fascinating. I remember even the last year covering the shooting in Vegas and then covering the shooting in Sutherland Springs, Texas, right? 26 people were shot and killed um, in Texas. And the news came, broke on Friday um, that this man, uh, Devin Kelly, who had committed this shooting, had previously been investigated for sexual assault and the police did not pursue the investigation, right? These, these clear spaces where there is an obvious pattern of this, pers- of this person's behavior and a failure of our government to intervene um, even when someone is exhibiting these behaviors, right? I think that 
but again, I think that on the ground in Florida, the, the students I was talking to, the teachers I was talking to, um, the kind of building political movement, um, in part because this was a school, you're seeing the teachers' unions playing a, a large supporting role for a lot of these students. Um, these are students and teachers who, who are being killed, right? And as you alluded to, many people are saying, well, why don't we just arm the teachers? Or why don't, I was listening to a senator on NPR the other day say, well, why shouldn't going to a school be more like going to an airport, was what he, what he was arguing. They said that? Yes. <laughs> I mean, let's be clear, for many urban students, it already is. It already exists, right? Well, for, for a lot of black and brown kids, they're already walking through plenty of metal detectors. And that's an extremely important point, right? We, we often like to say and dismiss out of hand, well, Columbine hap- happened and nothing happened, and Sandy Hook happened and nothing happened. Well, that's not true, and that's not true on a few different fronts. Mm-hmm. First of all, that's not true because post-Columbine, we started to see the creation of school resource officers, metal detectors in schools, and the creation of the, prison, the school-to-prison pipeline that we know disproportionately affects black and brown men specifically, but also women, right? Uh, Post Sandy Hook, on, on the other kind of the other side of that, we saw a series of state level gun laws that were passed in Connecticut, and now one of the states that has some of the most restrictive gun laws in the country in response to a tragedy that happened there. Uh, Brittany, you, you said earlier that often we fall into a fatalism about guns. Well, it's always been this way. It's always going to be this way. What are we going to do? How is this going to work? First of all, you know, two points on that. First of all, um, guns are not any more intertwined in our society than slavery was, right? Um, in, in fact, are less intertwined in the sh- construction of our society than slavery was. And we now live in a country without slavery, and we have. Mm-hmm. Beyond that, um, I think we forget sometimes how close major change is, and, and even we forget what has existed previously. We existed for a decade in this nation with an assault weapons ban. Um, the post-Sandy Hook, the Manchin-Toomey gun control bill, mm-hmm. came just a handful of votes short of passing. And that bill carried with it three or four GOP votes, right? And so the reality or this idea that it's impossible, it could not happen, you know, I I think we can't be restricted by our our current realities, but rather we have to be willing to envision the world we want to live in. Yeah. So let me, let me ask you a little bit about that. You, as you said, have been reporting on gun violence for a long time. What is the pathway that you see to the world we want to live in, especially around this issue? How do we actually get there? So I think, I think first of all, there, have to be, there has to be a willingness to put forth specific proposals, and those proposals also being the world people want to actually live in, right? I think that this kind of post-Columbine generation of which we're all members, we know a lot of the buzzwords. We know the things that people who want gun control or fewer mass shootings are supposed to say they want are universal background checks or an assault weapons ban. Or, but I do think there is a need for some specificity because having this debate on those terms clearly has not worked the way people want it to. I think that I saw a Democratic political consultant tweet this maybe yesterday, right? If, if people want a ban on the AR-15, they should say that. And they should put that legislation up for a vote. As opposed to saying, like, a ban on assault weapons. Right. Because what's an assault weapon? Right. And, and, that, and there, so there are nuanced difficulties there. And I think that folks have used that. If people do not want an AR-15 available in, in your hands, in my hands, in the hands of, of the next shooter, right, they should say that and they should put that up for a vote. Because what that does is it removes the wiggle room of people saying, well, I feel like this is a slippery slope. You know, it's not broad, it's specific. But second... It also makes folks who have to take a tough vote on that yeah. defend. For example, you have a Republican senator in Florida, Marco Rubio, who, who would have to. 
<laughs> he just got a reaction. Ooh, I love it. Clear, clearly a friend of the pod, right? <laughs> <laughs> Not a friend of the, any of the pod. Imagine a world in which he had to have a yes-no vote on should people be able to have an AR-15. Yeah. And right. if that vote is yes, defend in front of the cameras why he thinks every citizen should be able to have that in their hands, right? I can envision a world in which his vote might go differently than, than you might otherwise expect. And that's not just true of him. You can think of any number of Republicans who might be in that space. Is he getting a lot of pressure in Florida right now? It was a similar reaction when I said his name in, not in Florida to when I was saying his name here. Uh, same, same goes for Governor Rick Scott, um, another Republican in Florida. So in other words, maybe not just his vote will be different, but... Florida's votes will be different. Perhaps. Yeah. But, but, but think, about, think about the lessons of the last year or so. Republicans control Congress. The Republicans control the presidency. And yet time and time again, Republican uh, priorities have been stopped, not necessarily by Democratic lawmakers, but rather by Republican lawmakers who, facing the pressure of a mobilized grassroots on the left, have decided to make and take hard votes. Right? And so, and so if folks in the center and folks on the left, are, and forget the, the political spectrum, right, folks who want to see something done, if they are making phone calls the way they were making phone calls about saving the Affordable Care Act or making phone calls about uh, not wanting these tax packages, right, you might see a similar reaction. Now, those phone calls don't happen if people say, well, what are we going to do? We didn't do anything after Sandy Hook. There's nothing we can do. There's nothing we can change, right? That pressure has to exist, and when politicians are receiving actual pressure, it's amazing sometimes to see what happens. I, I want to ask from your lens as a journalist, how do you think about telling these stories? You know, DeRay, earlier you alluded to just how differently black and brown victims are reported than actual white domestic terrorists, right? We know that white domestic terrorists are often talked about in glowing terms and people like Mike Brown get called no angel. Mm -hmm. So when you think about writing your own stories and you are sitting down in front of your computer pulling out your notes, how do you think about your responsibility toward telling the right story? For me, I very often, and, and frankly on mass shootings, I very often specifically focus on the victims of the shootings mm -hmm. um, as, as opposed to the shooters, because while I accept and understand the journalistic need to report and probe those folks, I also, as, at a personal level, don't always know how to best navigate that, and so right. I, I take the coward's way out and just avoid being on that team and go on the other one. But, but that said, I, I think that you know, I think that we have to be careful sometimes about falling into cliché. I, I think that, um, one, as a means of trying to understand it ourselves, but two, uh, allowing ourselves to kind of check boxes as a means of moving on. Well, he was a domestic abuser, and he was mentally ill, and so, all right, we understand this one. Mm -hmm. It's been fascinating to watch the response and the ongoing media coverage, to the extent that it exists, of the Las Vegas shooting, because the shooter still doesn't, we still don't really understand what was going on. This is the worst mass, shoot, mass public shooting in recent modern American history, and none of the obvious things stick out, right? And, and so because of that, it's confounding. It, it, it's, we can't just tie it up in a bow. Oh, well, this was a bullied kid who had mental illness, or this was a domestic abuser who just got broken up with, or this. It complicates our understanding of these stories. The 
on the, on the victim side, one thing I try to, to think about and the stories I try to tell, like I said, either are the stories of the slain or the stories of the people who rise up in response. And so now a lot of the reporting I'm doing on the young activists um, and the work they're going to do. But when I write about folks who are killed in these shootings, and frankly, it's, it's taxing because you can't, you know, these are traumatic stories. You're talking to traumatized people. And to truly capture the essence of someone, you have to be vulnerable yourself. Yeah. You have to be right. willing to build a relationship with their loved ones, with their friends, with their families. But I remember after a piece I did on Sandy Hook, so years ago, one of my close friends and colleagues giving me feedback on it. And she said the thing that she found powerful about that piece I had written was that I told the story of how some of the victims, how, they, how and why they mattered to other people. I think that, and so when I, when I come into these stories, what I often think about is not necessarily the adjectives that folks throw out about their slain friend or their loved one, um, because frankly, we, it's the same adjectives. Um, we know certain ways to express grief, but it's how do I tell the story of relationships? How do I tell the story of the woman killed in Vegas and the man who met her earlier that night trying to find her in the hospital, mm-hmm. right? How do I tell the story in the Sandy Hook example, um, it's a piece I did for the LA Times, how do I tell the story of the young boy who had school anxiety at two of the young girls who were killed walked him to the bus stop every day, mm. right? This wasn't the parents of these girls saying they were the kindest and the funniest and the lovingest. It was showing how these two young girls provided love were important to another human being. Because I think that is, that, that is what we are, right? What are we but our relationships and how we are important to others? Zooming out from a process perspective, I'm interested in like two things. One is how do you decide where you're going? Like a lot of things happen all across the country every day. And then when you land, like what's the, like what happens? I remember you, I remember the Ferguson days. But like when you go to new places, are you just like going to where the crowds are? Are you like DMing people on Twitter, trying to meet them? Or, you know, like, were you one of those awful journalists when the kids were tweeting that they were in the classroom? Were you like, please DM me? It's like they're in class, like, this, you know, they're hiding. Like, what do you, what's the what there? Yeah. So, it cuts in a few different directions, but I'll try, I'll kind of generalize the totality of experiences, right? Very often, um, and I do this on purpose now, very often I try not to go until the, the, maybe the second or third day on hmm. stories. Hmm. Part of this is my own personal fatigue with being, we call it the parachuter, right? But the person who grabs their parachute and drops into the place. When I got to Ferguson, I didn't know how to spell Ferguson correctly, right? And, and the job of, I, I have Facebook posts still from early August, you know, where I have like a U in there in some weird space. To be fair, <laughs> most people didn't. <laughs> I never, I'd never heard of the place before, right? Put it, places on a map, and now we're but, in this, yeah. But the, but the reality, you know, the job is that I'm supposed to become, in hours, an expert at a place I've never heard of before, yeah. right? right. The, what I now try to do when it is up to me, and to be clear, it's not always all the way up to me. Like, I have bosses. But my, what I try to do is spend the first day or two at my desk, right, where I can surveil the local coverage, I can get a sense of who, who the players are, who the factors are, I can look for stories that have been told 10% that perhaps if I got the same person on the phone, they could be told 20 or 30% um, or 100%, you know, preferably. The, it's fascinating because in those early moments, in those early, in the 
after whatever it is, a police shooting, a mass shooting, a terrorist attack, a lot of names surface. Witnesses are doing a quick television interview, and then they disappear into the ether, never to be seen again, right? I spend a lot of time watching the local news and thinking, well, if I could talk to that person, what are seven questions I would ask instead of this one hmm. meant to get a sound bite, right? And so I spend a lot of my time doing that. I do, um, at times, I do interact. I am one of the type of people reaching out to the folks most affected. Now, there is a science to that, and it's difficult. You know, it is, in fact, the job of a journalist sometimes to be rude. When I'm interviewing someone who ran out of uh, the shooting in Las Vegas, and he's talking about how he got out covered in blood, he's missing a shoe, and I say, oh, wait, which shoe were you missing? That's rude. That's obnoxious, right? It's not, but it's my job. Because when I write that story about Cody Robertson, when I write that story and you're reading it, I don't want you to have any question. I don't want you to have any moment where you stop and think, well, I wonder what shoe it was. I want you to be able to envision it. Oh, wait, he ran outside and his left shoe's gone. And, his, and, and so, but I do think that it's important for us, especially now, as we have access to people in ways we did not previously because of social media, it's important for us to be cognizant of that. I'm not... I'm not sending tweets at people and saying, hey, so glad you're alive. Can I use your video? And also, can you call me real quick, right? Um, six hours later, seven hours later, I might send a, a message um, or a tweet and say, hey, I hate to do this. I hate, I hate to reach out. Tell me, say no if you want to, but if you want to talk, I'm here. And it's remarkable. You know, people very often want to tell their stories. Right. The, you know, if you are encountering a journalist, it's either the best day of your life or the worst day of your life. I interview you the day after you win the lottery. I interview you the day after your son has been killed, right? And if I'm willing to be a human with you, to be vulnerable myself to you, and to be considerate of you, more often than not, people want to talk to you about what's going on and what's happening. Cool. Now, the last question as we close out is, uh, we ask everybody on the pod, uh, what is a piece of advice that you've gotten over the years that stuck with you? Hmm. For me, I... I think often to something an editor said to me as I was covering Walter Scott's shooting in North Charleston, South Carolina. And this was, so this was early 2015. We're kind of in the midst of the growing Black Lives Matter protest movement. Um, this is among the most jarring videos that came out during that time. At the time, possibly the most jarring. Mm -hmm. And I very often get asked, these, get asked questions about what it's like to be a reporter who writes about this type of trauma. Right? That obviously, as a black man, I cannot separate myself from these realities. Um, I understand it. I'm, I'm writing about victims often who look like my mother or my brothers or my father, right? Like, but the people ask me very often, how do you, to what extent can you remove yourself or do you? And I think to this advice I received from one of my editors after the Walter Scott video came out, and, and what he said was, he said, the more emotional the story, the less emotional the reporter should be, right? In these moments, for me, in my job, and how, where I interact in this mosaic, everyone else is watching this video and freaking out, as they should be. They're pain, they're upset, they're frustrated, they're angry, they want something to change, they want something to happen. And I think it's one of the reasons we see these hashtags trend, we see, because people want to do something, they want to change something. I have a role in that moment. I don't ever have to sit with my phone and go, what can I do? My job is to get as much information. My job is to answer the questions you have and empower folks to then make the change they want to see, right? To answer those basic questions. 
and, and to ask those policy questions. And so I think about that very often, that while I'm certainly an emotional being, right, and I, and I certainly hurt and feel and, you know, that in these moments, what can I do to push this forward? And for me, that answer is always clear. I'm going to ask questions, and I'm going to get answers, and, that, and those answers are going to empower people to build the world they want to live in. Thank you, Wesley Lowry. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Don't go anywhere, there's more to come. For years, I just dreaded going to the dentist. But at Advanced Dentistry, I don't have to. First and foremost, they want you to feel comfortable when you walk in, like you'll feel it. Whereas in the past, I might have gone into the dentist and thinking, I might feel some pain at some point. But with IV sedation, it can be something that you don't dread. If you've been avoiding the dentist because of fear, worry, or just not wanting to be judged, you're not alone. Visit NoFearDentist.com to learn how IV sedation can change your life. Ready for an amazing deal? BreezeLine's fiber-powered internet starting at $19.99 per month offers the reliability you deserve and security you can trust. Whether you're streaming, gaming, or working from home, we've got all your needs covered with speeds up to 1 gig and our two-year price lock guarantee. This deal gets even better with two free months of internet, free equipment, and free Wi-Fi your way to protect against cyber threats. Act now. Terms and conditions apply. Offer expires July 8, 2024. Learn more at BreezeLine.com. Sofas, recliners, love seats, everything is better in leather. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley, where bold meets durable. And wait a minute, who's been finger painting on the couch again? That's okay, leather is easy to clean. The new leather collection at Ashley is built with the durability you need for the whole family. Yes, pets too. Luxury is meant to be livable. Shop chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. Reynolds Wrap. Reynolds Wrap. Potato wedges? Wedges. Olive oil? Salt. Mwah! Well done, hon. Well done, chef. Right. With Reynolds Wrap, cooking becomes so easy, you can feel like the chef of your kitchen. Easy prep, easy cook, easy clean. Reynolds Wrap. Were you uninvited to game night? Do you play board games with the ferocious intensity of an iron-fisted oligarch? Have friends left game night asking, how do you sleep at night? Then you should get a mattress from Mattress Firm. They can help anyone sleep. Get to Mattress Firm's Memorial Day sale and save up to $500 on select Tempur-Pedic adjustable mattress sets, plus get a $300 instant gift, all with free and fast delivery. Get matched at Mattress Firm. Sleep at night. Restrictions apply. See store or website for details. And now I'll be joined by Vangelis. If you did not know, Ben used to be the president of the NAACP, the youngest president, right, in the history of the NAACP, uh, lifelong activist, and now is running to be the next governor of Maryland. Maryland. Yeah. It's, it's like where you live, man. I know. I live there. <laughs> so we're not going to do your backstory, but I, I do want to know why you've done a lot. Why governor? You know, I've been a... CEO of a nonprofit, or now a partner in a small business since I was 26 years old. And when you think about serving, you think about running, you really got to understand who you are. I have a hard time being deliberative in a four-person partnership 
uh, in my business, I could never be like a congressman or a senator. It would drive me batty. <laughs> um, you want to be the executive. Yeah, right. And, and it's, it's, it's what I do. But I think what's important in these times, you know, the most important lesson I learned in college was in judo class. The first lesson, first lesson in judo is you shall use your opponent's momentum against them. And after Trump was elected, I went around saying the serenity prayer like every day. <laughs> uh, you know, I've, I've never been addicted to anything, but all of a sudden I understood the value for some people of going to like AA four times a day. Because every time you say the serenity prayer, it helps, you know? And, and then one day I woke up and I realized the most important concept there, of course, is what can you control? What can you change? And in Maryland, where Democrats outnumber Republicans two to one, we can change who runs our state. We have an NRA-backed, Koch brother-funded governor. But again, coming back to judo, the most important lesson, you will use your opponent's momentum against them. The momentum of the far right wing, they came, the way they came to control every branch of our federal government has been the states' rights movement. They've concentrated power in our states. So in this upside-down world where we have these almost anarchists running our federal government, the way that we can move our families forward, no matter what happens in Washington, is to control our states. And that's why I'm running for government. Okay. Now, before I talk about the Baltimore police trials, I will ask you, because I obviously love the movie, did you see Black Panther? I saw it last night with my kids, yes. And what did you think? No spoilers, though. Don't screw it up. Yeah, no. Um, you know, what I thought was this. So the NAACP opened our Hollywood office in 1915, 1914, uh, in response to the first epic movie ever made in America, which was Birth of a Nation. And I've watched Black Panther, and I thought to myself, wow, like we finally have come 180 degrees from Birth of a Nation. Okay. There we go. Now, I, I travel a lot, but I live in Baltimore, yes. and it's a great place. And the, the trials of the police have just been wild. It was, if, if you don't know, there's a whole division of the police department that with the gun task force that was uh, recently indicted and two officers were recently convicted, like four other officers pled guilty. Yes. It's been wild. Or six, you're right, six. Somebody got me together down here. Six, you're right. I heard, thank you, you know, it takes a village. Thank you for being in the village. Um, it's so wild, though, and there are still some people who aren't calling for, like, some wholesale changes. Like, if yes. we need the police at all, they, this can't be it. As governor, what would you do to, to change the situation in Baltimore with regard to police violence? Well, first, let's just take a step back and, and just recognize that it's not as wild as perhaps it should be, because, of course, it comes against the backdrop of Freddie Gray. It comes against the backdrop of four dozen Baltimore jail corrections officers uh, being prosecuted for corruption. Four dozen? Yes. After, I missed that. Yeah, after four of them were found to have gotten pregnant by the same inmate. I didn't know that. Who was running the jail, right? So we've got a bigger corruption issue. And we have to take it seriously because the only way that we're going to get to a place where citizens trust the police 
and they work together to solve crime and make us all safe is, is if we actually take some real action. And so I'll be rolling out this week, actually, a strategy at the center of which is we've got to have citizen oversight of our police department. And we've got to have a strong civilian complaint review board with real teeth. Baltimore needs to control its own police department. Explain to people who don't know that the city doesn't control it. Yeah, so since the Civil War, it's been a dual jurisdiction agency, state and city control. And if you want to make any real changes, you have to go to the state legislature to get permission. And it stymies local control and accountability. But we also have to, uh, frankly, incentivize recruiting officers from Baltimore. You know, if we need police at all, then they can be from the city. The, um, <laughs> but, you know, it's important. My, my grandfather was a probation officer in Baltimore for 30 years. Hmm. And when he retired, and as he had been for a long time, he was chief uh, for the western side of the city for juvenile probation in Baltimore. And I remember when I was young, uh, I was probably eight years old, and I said to my granddad, I said, you know, granddad, I, like, uh, some of the fourth graders are kind of scary, running around in packs, beating kids up. I was like, their older brothers must, must be a trip, granddad. And aren't you ever afraid? He said, sure I am. And that's why I tell each of them, this is where I live, also in West Baltimore. I get home every day at 6 p.m. If you've ever had the worst day of your life and you do not know what to do, you come sit on my steps. And when I get home, we'll go inside and we'll figure it out together. My granddad had raised his daughter in the McCullough Homes housing projects and on, uh, on Pulaski Street. If you only know Baltimore from the wire, that's like half the set. <laughs> and, and so ultimately, the, he was serving his community. And, and, and as you know from teaching, there's a difference. And when you're really serving your community, then the level of fear goes way down and the level of courage goes way up. And that's what we need more of. Now, at the state level in Maryland, people have been talking about legalized marijuana for a long time. Yes. And it's been moving pretty slow. And when I'm governor, we'll, we will get it done. Okay. Well, there we go. Uh, we will get there it done. There we go. No, it, and this is why, all right, this is why. Ultimately, we have to have a rational conversation and say 75% of American adults have smoked cannabis at some point in their lives. People are like, where's the stat? Like, yeah, right. <laughs> they're like, show me the stat. Self-report surveys on drug use, people are notoriously honest. They kind of like to brag about it. Oh, yeah, I've done that. Um, <laughs> so, so, one... Two, our uh, law enforcement on this drug from the very beginning has been notoriously racially biased, destroying people's lives. <laughs> Three, if it's illegal, the money goes somewhere, typically into the pockets of a cartel. It makes us less safe. Four, maybe most surprising, Baby, follow me. So I teach criminal justice policy at Princeton. That's what I'll be doing tomorrow. I teach every Monday. And funny thing about violence in the drug trade, it actually has nothing to do with the intensity of the drug. 
it has to do with how easy that drug is to source. When a drug is harder to source, there's less competition for turf, because, you know, you can't really get heroin unless you have a connection in Afghanistan, and not everybody can get that, or, you know, in, in some other foreign countries. But you, you aren't going to source heroin from, like, you know, folks out in the hills of West Virginia. And so heroin turf in Baltimore, it's been pretty stable for a long time. It's actually sold like real estate. Really? From dealers. Like, if you want this area, it will cost you. And it's, and it's you know, and, and like a small business, it's a, it's a multiple of, like, annual earnings, right? Like, you can, okay. you can buy and trade it like a business. But weed, it turns out, is actually a weed. You can grow it <laughs> anywhere. You can grow it on the roof. You can grow it in the basement. You can grow it in your bedroom. You can grow it in the forest. That's like a quote from Ben John. Weed is actually a weed. <laughs> and, and so, what does that mean? What it means is that there is always a new set of dealers trying to encroach on your territory. And because it's not legally regulated, it is, re- it is regulated by bullets. I asked a former member of BPD to go talk to current members of BPD and ask them what was going on with the violence. He came back and said, you know, there's a lot of debate about what's happened in the last two years. He said, but every commander I spoke to said pretty much the same thing. In the last decade, they estimate half of the killings have been one set of weed dealers enforcing on another set of weed dealers. Hmm. This is ultimately about reducing violence. Every state where it's been legalized, you've seen violence go down there, and you've seen violence go down in states on the border as a result. First makes us safe. The second affirms that when we actually legalize cannabis, we deal a blow to the cartels, and we need both. I haven't seen you since. Uh, I feel like the last time I saw you was at the Grammys. Yes. Yes. So, Where? what you guys don't know is that when I was 18 years old, my moniker in the West Village because I was a student I don't know at this Columbia, either, was Dave Chappelle's Puerto Rican bodyguard. <laughs> I love this. Because Dave is my godfather's son. And, well, I'm a big guy who was on the crew team and had heard every joke, so I didn't laugh, so they just assumed I was the bodyguard. <laughs> and so when Dave won his Grammy, I ran up to New York City and ran into this guy, and we had a good night. It was I fun. I didn't know if I was supposed to say that you, he was your godbrother, but yeah. you said it. There we go. I just picked up five votes. <laughs> and I saw him. I was like, Ben, why are you here? And he's like, I like saw Dave, and then like Ben comes out. I was like, what are you doing here? And he's like, okay. You got suspended from Columbia? I did. For what? Aiding and abetting the obstruction of an entrance to a university facility for more than a very short period of time. <laughs> protesting. We were the students, first students kicked out for protesting. Uh, since SDS. It had been like a generation. And you went on, I mean, you, you went on and became a Rhodes Scholar and you did some other cool things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I, um, I did, I did. But you did get suspended. I, how long were you suspended? Well, we were suspended for a semester. Okay. Um, but I was having fun. Because when you're an organizer, and I, my first job as an organizer was, for the, was in Harlem working for the NAACP Legal Defense Fund while I was in college. And I got kicked out of college for student organizing. And I got a call from a guy named Derek Johnson, who's now the president of the NAACP, asking me to come down to Mississippi because Governor Kirk Fordyce was fixing, that's what they say in Mississippi, was fixing <laughs> to turn an HBCU, a public historically black college university, into a prison. 
And another young organizer at Spelman named Stacey Abrams, who's now running for governor of Georgia, joined us, and together we built that movement, and we defeated that governor, and those schools are still open to this day. And the very last question is the question we ask everybody is, what is a piece of advice that you've gotten over the years that stuck with you? So after I finished organizing in Mississippi, I decided to stay. Actually, ironically, the state president of the NAACP was on the governor's payroll, and she didn't like me being there, and so she tried to run me out of the state. And I said, well, I was fixing to leave, but now i got to stick around for a while. <laughs> and I went to be a reporter for the local black newspaper, the Jackson Advocate, which was the most frequently firebombed publication in the U.S. in the 80s and 90s. That's an yeah, it is. When you're a journalist, it actually is. <laughs> Uh, last burned down in 1998. And my beat was public corruption, hmm. primarily law enforcement. And I was investigating a sheriff named Dolph Bryant who had become uh, famous in his region and ultimately what fueled his campaign 25 years earlier to be governor was that he had locked up Johnny Cash for picking a daisy and inspired the song Starksville City Jail. And... Well, you know, somebody picks up Johnny Cash for picking a daisy in 1969 or so. He's just a bad guy, right? <laughs> and so I was investigating him because we believed he was involved in framing a, a black farmer for arson. And the death threats started getting very specific. And at a certain point, after I, somebody had finished explaining to me how they were going to, you know, like, draw and quarter me, essentially... I went to my publisher and I said, you know, I don't like these death threats. And they're getting muddy specific. I don't like any of it. I'm thinking I'll cover the rest of this case from my desk. And he said, son, do you feel like you're doing what you're supposed to do? And I said, yes, sir. In a typical Bible Belt fashion, he said. Well, I'm here to testify that that feeling comes from God. And my only question for you, son, is this. Who are you more afraid of? Them fools? or God himself. <laughs> and from that day forward, I have never looked over my shoulder. Well, thank you, Ben. I appreciate it. <laughs> if you raise your hand, Jess will find you. Jess, there's somebody behind you right there. Oh, you got it, okay. So I just have a question for you, question for you Wes. Um, what do you think about the idea of having more research and data on what is happening with these mass shootings, these school shootings, in order to create legislation that really um, hits hard on these issues? That's a really excellent question. I, I think that sometimes we overlook and we forget the extent to which we do not have the answers to some of these questions, right? And so as the folks to my right know, my background um, is in criminal justice data um, and reporting around that. Um, that post-Ferguson, my colleagues and I started a database to track fatal police shootings because the federal government wasn't keeping that information. So we were having this massive conversation about how often the police were killing people, and we were doing it in the absence of the actual information about how often the police were killing people. The, it's similar um, when we look at information on mass shootings and a lot of gun violence, right? That while there are some aggregate data kept at a federal level, um, there's, a, there's a massive hole there that it falls to the media very often and to nonprofit groups to keep and collect this data. Um, the CDC, in fact, has been banned now for years from doing studies about gun violence as a public health issue, right? And so 
I, I think that we have to remember that, and I think that's something that's important to push for to the extent to which I advocate for anything uh, in my role as a journalist, it is always to advocate for more and better information mm -hmm. because that information is what empowers us to have real conversations. I think that there are people, uh, when we started doing police shootings, folks thought that police shootings happen maybe once a week, right? And what we found was that three people each day are shot and killed by the police. Um, that the magnitude of the problem was by multitudes more larger than we thought it was. And, and so I think that when we look at mass shootings, uh, gun violence, school shootings, that should fall to the federal government to keep and track that data. And I think that that is an ask, that is a demand that folks of a lot of political stripes, if they are listening and paying attention and if they receive pressure, are very likely to sign on to. Why don't we count them? Why don't we track them? Why don't we get the information? It's very hard for someone to rebut that. Before you go, I had a question, Wesley. People, um, people have been saying there were 18 mass shootings this year, but the Washington Post published and said that that wasn't true. I don't want to put you on the spot because we didn't talk about this. But do you have a... What's so, the what? Well, and so, and so this is one of the weaknesses with... I'm a huge advocate for media organizations, Tracking things the government does not track, obviously, right? Um, but, then, but also uh, for nonprofit groups, for activist groups tracking this. The difficulty, though, in these spaces is everyone defines something a little bit differently. Mm -hmm. And when you can call into question data that is being kept, you can dismiss out of hand what people are using that data to argue. So with mass shootings, for example, the number we saw after the Parkland shooting was 18. And that's every town's number, right? There have been 18 school shootings so far this year. For us at The Post, and that piece was written by my colleague John Woodrow Cox, and I would genuinely encourage everyone to go look at his work from the last year. He did a project based on, uh, he did a project about the effect of gun violence on children, mm. tracked every mass shooting since Columbine in a school, did pieces about children who had family members killed or who witnessed killings, right? And it was really moving, difficult work, but very important. But as part of this, he built a database of every school shooting since Columbine. And what he found was that a lot of the nonprofit groups, even the activist groups, maybe sometimes take some liberties with what they define as a school shooting, right? And so if I were to pull into an elementary school parking lot tonight and kill myself in the parking lot, according to every town, that would be a school shooting. And so what we see is that while, yes, that is technically a shooting that happened at a school, for most viewers and listeners, when you hear there have been 18 school shootings this year, you are thinking right. that 18 active shooters have opened yeah. fire inside of a school. What John found in, in that piece, uh, kind of debunking the 18 number, that there have been five or six, maybe it was seven, active school shootings so far in 2018. That number is enough. We are six weeks into the year. Right. Like to be clear, <laughs> right. like It's not yeah. as if. <laughs> That's still wild. You know, it's not as if anyone is saying, well, it's not 18, so this is not a problem, or this is not urgent. Right. It's saying that if what people will do is if they can call into question the integrity of your data, the integrity mm -hmm. of your work, they will use that to call into, into question the integrity of your message, right? Yeah, that's right. Go ahead, I went to an anti-Trump protest the day after he was elected in L.A., and I was hit with a lot of, why are you protesting in a blue state? You're stopping traffic for people who probably voted for Hillary. What's the point? Uh, my question is, if you believe uh, maybe that prisons are obsolete, that we should have universal health care, or that, as Dure threw in a couple times, that maybe we don't need cops, um, how do you move from hashtags to people showing up to calling their senators, to activism, to organization, like, how do you move from just 
for me, what being at that protest did was I saw solidarity, I got to scream in the street, I got to, in my own right, and for my own mental health, say, I don't stand for this, this is wrong, but I don't know how to turn that into something that can change policy, that can change the world that I live in and the world that I see. Mass incarceration exists in blue states too. <laughs> Brown and black kids are going to schools that do not serve them in blue states every single day. Eric Garner was choked to death in a blue state. Yeah. So the idea that racism is red or blue, that it is Republican or Democrat, that it is conservative or liberal is a lie. Racism is American. And justice is American. Come in and preach. Go ahead. You always be interrupting my flow. Because you be on God. it. You be on it. So, you know, and, and, and Doctor, I, I talk about the letter from a Birmingham jail all the time, and this is why. Because, and he talks about it here, that he says that he is far more threatened by the moderate, by the white moderate, who is more concerned with order than with justice, than he is by the Ku Klux Klaner, right? And, and you showing up to do what you did and continuing to do that is a disruption of a status quo. It will not be popular. Disrupting the status quo never is because you are inherently disrupting people's comfort. You are inherently looking at someone and saying voting for Hillary or Bernie or whomever was not enough. And therefore you are calling them into question when they don't want to be. So that's what you were encountering. And you have to know that when you encounter that, that actually means that you're onto something and you have to keep going. Yes, Wakanda forever! <laughs> The last, thing, uh, the last thing that I'll say is I remember in those early days of uh, the protests in Ferguson, how it was not tens of thousands of people in the street across the country then. The people told us that this was not the right way to do it. People told us that we should call and we should email. People told us that we were wrong. And we said, we know just a couple things. We know we're going to stay here today and we're going to be here tomorrow, right? <laughs> And we knew that every day, and that is what we took with us. And then all across the country, it took a while for people to realize that it wasn't just Ferguson that had a problem, but it was America that had a problem. And it took people like you just doing the grind, like us doing the grind. Every, you know, people only see, they saw me on Colbert. They didn't see me when me and that were sleeping in a van because somebody, we were going to go to somebody's house in the middle after the protest. They didn't answer. We were too tired to drive. So literally, we take turns waking up to turn the heat on, right? Like, people didn't see us out in the middle of the night when it was raining. And like, people didn't see that sort of work. They just saw sort of, they see us now at the pod of the people, right? Uh, so this is a grind. It's more of a grind at the beginning than like we would like it to be. But we know that the arc only bends towards justice because people bend it, right? We are incredibly humbled and thankful that all of you chose to be here tonight. Uh, because we believe that the power is always closest to the people, uh, we will be out around, like if you want to stay around that, to talk, we'll be around for like 30, 40 minutes to talk to people. Um, but we will let y'all go from the live show. So thank you. We love you. Thank and you. see you later.
Ashley's Memorial Day sale is going on now. Shop our biggest selection of hot buys, cool deals, or shop limited time savings on new summer spaces. Plus, get 72-month special financing on select in-store mattress purchases made with your Ashley Advantage Synchrony credit card between May 14th and June 3rd. Whether you're redecorating indoors or rethinking your outdoor space, save big on this season's trending styles. Only at Ashley. Subject to credit approval. Minimum monthly payments required. No minimum purchase required. See store for details. Hi, it's Martha Stewart. You know, I spend a lot of time thinking about dirt. At 3 a.m.? At all hours of the day, really. What people don't know is that not all dirt is the same. You need dirt with the right kind of nutrients. New miracle Grow organic raised bed and garden soil is so dense, so full of nutrient-rich, high-quality ingredients. miracle Grow is simply the best. 